He is the creator and sustainer of all the worlds, whether those worlds are known or unknown to mankind. unclouded by hate does not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice hello everybody my name is charlie you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer c.e dorset and we are continuing our study today on the apostles creed we're actually going to be continuing through the end of the week and then next week we start something new um if you don't know why we're doing this if you missed the first episode in this series I, I highly recommend you just go back and listen to it because I heard an evangelical say something that blew my mind and it, it prompted me to actually go through the Apostles' Creed because I, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. So definitely go back and check that out and on we go. Today we will be talking about a uh, interesting line. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, this one, I think, might be more, more... Like, every time we talk about one of these, I talk about how it's controversial. This one is doubly so, because it requires explanation and understanding of a word in a context that we're not used to hearing the word used in. See... When we hear the word Catholic, we usually think Roman Catholic because, you know, Roman Catholics are the largest group of Christians in the world. But there are also Byzantine Catholics and other kinds of Catholics that are out there. Um, the actual word Catholic here is a very important one, and it means the same everywhere. It does not actually refer to the Roman Catholic Church at all, though during my time with the Roman Catholic Church, depending on the priest that I was talking to, they would either point out that this is, you know, meaning universal, meaning the same everywhere. I, I did hear a few priests tell me that that was a direct reference to the Roman Catholic Church, and they're wrong. <laughs> That's not what it has reference to at all. So, why is this part of the creed? And I want to point that out because tomorrow we'll be talking about the communion of the saints. And to some people, they would see those as the same thing. Historically speaking, they're distinct. The church is here on earth. The church is the earthly institution through which the gospel is proclaimed and the kingdom is built. So when we're talking about the Holy Church here, we are talking about the same church, yes, that Jesus spoke of when he changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter. You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, what Jesus was referring to was the proclamation that he was the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. 
not on Peter himself. He just, you know, named Peter that because Peter is the one who proclaimed it. The church is the body of Christ in this world. We are the hands of Christ. We are the feet of Christ. We are the back of Christ. We are the heart of Christ living in this world to bring everything into the kingdom. And the church is a very important thing, though I don't think it's any of the things that people attribute to it. The church is not the building. The church is not the institution. The church is, as Christ himself said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I also in the midst of them. That is the church. The church is the people, not the hierarchy, not even the theology. The church is the people. This is actually one of the reasons why we have a creed. In the first place, the church was trying to figure out exactly who it was and what it stood for, because in the beginning, there were many varieties of early Christianity, and that isn't unusual, because the way the church spread was in this very much, you know, I hate to say home church movement, because I don't want to connect it to any of the things that's happening today because the circumstances surrounding the original, you know, Christian church and now are very, very different. You know, we have 2000 years of history and baggage and other concepts that have built up around the church that inform the various movements that we have today. Whereas back then they had none of that. They had, oral teachings of Jesus. They had some of the letters of Paul. Um, there's good evidence that there were early sayings, gospels floating around. We know that the story of Christ's life had been set fairly early because Paul makes reference to it in his letters. And those letters are generally agreed to be early in the history of Christianity. But they didn't have any of the New Testament. They didn't have any of the writings of the doctors of the church or any of that that would come later and help us define and understand what it means to be Christian. And so each house, each parish, if you will, um, which I'm using for lack of better terms and not, again, to endorse any modern institution, had to figure out what it meant to be Christian. And so you have various groups, some of which were extremely Jewish and that they continued practicing Judaism as they had before and added Jesus and his teachings into what they did. This actually is commented on in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 15, where we have the council of Jerusalem make mention of the fact that you know, this was happening and settling the question as to whether or not new converts to Christianity had to be circumcised. In fact, the term Christian itself was so new that in the book of Acts, its coining is remarked on that the Christians in Antioch were the first people to start calling themselves that. And 
while that's a phrase that spread, various other movements called themselves various other things, sometimes after teachers, sometimes after thoughts, or various, you know, parts of their ideology. But the movements really were separate from each other. Because, you know, this is the first century. There's no internet, there's no phone, there's no easy way for communication to exist between them. So each individual church, as it's planted, starts having its own ideas as to what does a church service look like? What does the Christian life look like? What does Christian theology look like? So as questions and concerns are coming up from new members and existing members, each of these churches had to ask themselves how those questions should be answered. And each one developed their own methodology for doing so. And over time, as the church spread, and you have to remember the church, the the early Christian church spread fairly rapidly and fairly widely, meaning that there were disparate groups spread throughout the Roman Empire, each struggling to answer questions in their own ways without being able to have quick conversation with each other, without being able to have symposiums, because remember, Christianity was illegal for quite some time in its, in its origin. And so they all had to ask, what, what do these things mean? And a ver- variety of answers came up. You have various schools start coalescing around each other and start, you know, oh, well, we agree on these things, let's continue moving forward. And as things go from ideas of, oh, well, maybe the answer to that question is this, into doctrine, oh, no, no, the answer to that question is this. These factions became more rigid in their thinking. So by the time we get to about, what was it, 325, where we have the Council of Nicaea, and remember we have two councils, we have the Council of Rome prior to that, there's a lot of shared beliefs in the church and a lot of very different ones. You know, many questions will remain unresolved in Christianity in general until the 7th century and beyond. You know, it's not really until the 7th century that we have a a firm definition as to what the Trinity means. I mean, we have to wait for the, you know, two Gregories and a Basil for that to come about. I mean, they really, you know, cemented our idea, our modern idea of what the Trinity is that most Trinitarian Christians to this day hold to. And so this is where the creeds originally came from. There was this idea that if we are all the body of Christ, and Christ stresses so often in his teachings that you will know his followers by their unity with each other, that there was a strong urge within the early Christian movement to have unity. And thus, various creeds and liturgies began to be written and passed around, and eventually lists of canonical texts that should be used for services started to be passed around. And these texts provided a basis on which the early church would coalesce and eventually form. Now, there were a lot of 
dissenters to various ideas, and eventually, of course, words like heretic and orthodox start being used more and more within the movement. But the initial instinct here is not a bad one, though I think it often gets a bad rap. This idea that, you know, Christians should be Catholic, that the church should be universal. It should be the same everywhere. And what you then start having is arguments over this term Catholic. What does that mean? You know, this ended up, for example, up until the Second Vatican Council, meaning that at all Roman Catholic churches, the Mass was said in Latin. Because then, no matter where you went in the world, the Mass was said verbatim the same. It didn't help that people didn't speak Latin, and so they kind of just sat in a room while people chanted in the language that they didn't know throughout the service. And of course, concerns like that were addressed in the Second Vatican Council. But, you know, this was an interesting instinct that we see moving throughout the church, and we still see it to this day, except for it's usually in its inverse. Rather than an instinct for all churches to be the same everywhere in some way, shape, or form, it generally takes on the more solipsistic, navel-gazing connotation of, well, my church is the natural way that the church should be, and thus all other churches should conform to us, because we're, of course, right. I wouldn't be a part of a church that wasn't right, would I? Well, I think you're using right and wrong in very interesting ways there. And we could break off into a discussion of epistemology or how do we know what we know and ontology, what are things really at their root cause. And maybe we'll do some of those conversations in future episodes. But this is, really isn't the place for some of that deep dive right now on this episode. This is why the creeds are important, especially the Apostles' Creed. Vir virtually every group that calls itself Christian can agree with everything on this list. And that, in its simplest way, is how the church is Catholic, how the church is universal. It is the same everywhere. That as long as you can say that you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only son, born of the Holy Ghost, conceived of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into the dead, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into to the Father, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As long as you can say those basic things, you're a Christian, we should leave you alone. That's the core of what the creeds are for. And we'll discuss this topic a little bit more after the break. And we're back. So, if that's the purpose of the creed, and why there are so many catechisms and prayer books out there. What went wrong? I, I think what went wrong was heretic hunting. 
And the church has a very long tradition of this that goes back to at least the third century. And maybe not to the extreme that you find with the um, Spanish Inquisition, which is probably the most infamous portion of that, or the Hundred Years' War, in which Catholics and Protestants fought over, well, not really anything, because they they really didn't have any disputes other than the fact that they didn't think the Pope should have political power and that everyone should bow to the divine right of kings. But, yeah, we're not even going to go there because it's a whole other thing. See, very early in church history, there was this idea that you had to defend the church from evil. That you had to protect the church from being infiltrated by people who weren't really Christian. See, I don't know that Jesus intended that at all. Think about that phrase we started with at the very beginning here, that passage, right? Peter, who do they say that I am? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, You are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So if Jesus taught us that not even the gates of hell could prevail against the church that he founded, do we really have to protect it? Is it really such a weak and fragile thing that a few people who had different ideas from our own would be able to tear it down and destroy it? I mean, it's an honest question, and it's a fair question, and it's one that I don't think a lot of Christians ever take the time to ask themselves. That's why they feel that they have to stand up and protect the church. If they don't protect the church, if they don't make everything work the way it's supposed to within the church, if every doctrine isn't right, if every word isn't in the liturgy isn't correct, people's souls are at risk. I mean, this is something that I really struggled with when I was younger. I was raised in the Baptist church, and then we attended a non-denominational church before I converted to Catholicism, to Roman Catholicism. Um, and it's something that really bothered me, because in my church, they were very clear that for someone to be saved, they had to, quote-unquote, recite the sinner's prayer. And in so doing, they would be magically part of the family of God, their sins would be forgiven, and they could go to heaven. Well, this panicked me in a way that it didn't panic a lot of my fellow members of the church. If I have to say the sinner's prayer in order to go to heaven, then I want to make sure that I said the right sinner's prayer. Because if I said the wrong one, then I'm not going to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. And so I read the entire Bible for the first time, desperately trying to find the sinner's prayer. Because something that important would have to be written in Scripture, wouldn't it? And I couldn't find it. And I panicked and I asked my pastor about it. And he kind of looked at me and said, oh, well, you know, it's just kind of what comes out of your heart. And I'm like, yeah, but that's nice. But 
if it's so important that we say the sinner's prayer, we can't go to heaven, then surely somewhere God would have shown us what the sinner's prayer is. And this led to a great crisis of faith for me. And I struggled really hard trying to figure out what to do. And that's not actually how I ended up converting to Catholicism. That's a whole other story. But, you know, it shows the problem that this kind of thinking can produce in someone. Once you set up a wall and say that only the people that have the proper shibboleth, the proper password, can enter past this wall and be one of us, then you're actually creating an idol of words and doctrines. And I think this is a problem for most churches. Since I believed that I had to say the proper sinner's prayer in order to become a Christian, and I feared that I hadn't, this created a lot of fear, a lot of panic, and terror in me. And when you're a child, I mean, this persisted into my teen years, you know, that's when all of your feelings are heightened. So that terror was profound. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to say a sinner's prayer. That's actually not in there. Yeah, I can find you passages that say repent. I can find passages that say that you should, you know, repent of your sins and turn to God. I can find those passages, but they're not actually linked to anything. Jesus says that we should be baptized. The Apostle Peter on Pentecost says that we should be baptized. That's it. We get passed under the water. Now, this can start a whole other argument over, well, what is baptism? Is sprinkling baptism? Does that count? Do you have to be submerged? You get the Anabaptists who believe that every time you committed a sin, you had to be baptized again because you had negated your baptism. What does baptized mean? And we can get fixated on these little things that separate us from the actual meaning and purpose of what we're doing. You see, the whole point of the church is what Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. For my yoke is light and easy to bear. I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. See, the purpose of the Christian life isn't to add burdens onto people. There's not going to be a pop quiz in heaven. When we die, we're not going to be asked a series of yes or no, pass-fail questions in order to determine whether or not we deserve entry. That's not anywhere in Scripture. In fact, if you want to know what the Bible actually does say... It says that we will be judged based on what we did. It also says that if we have asked for forgiveness for our sins, they shall be cast as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. So, we will only have to answer for unrepentant sin, and then we will be judged accordingly. That's what the Bible says, if you actually read (laughs) the text of it. There isn't going to be a divine pop quiz where Jesus asks you what is the actual nature of the Godhead. You know, in 35 words or less, define the Trinity. 
It's not, it's not, that's not going to happen. You see, while it is important for us to understand our faith and the spirituality that comes along with it, a lot of the details, while they may seem important to us for various reasons, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter all that much. And this is the problem that orthodoxy put into the church. And by that, I'm not specifically talking about like Greek orthodoxy and the schism. I'm talking about literally the idea of orthodoxy, that we can divide the good from the bad. Jesus divides the good from the bad. And while, yes, I think it's easy to look at a group like the Branch Davidians and say, you know, the kind of Christianity that they were practicing, you know... One, they believe that Jesus returned as the sinful Messiah. That probably isn't a good thing. And, oh, he's having sex with underage girls. That's definitely not a good thing. Yeah, we can easily come to terms with a group like that. But what about the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox? What about the differences between the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox Church? How many of those decisions matter how many of those opinions really in the grand scheme of things matter think about the church divided the great schism occurred over the question of whether we should have icons or statues whether we should have paintings or statues paintings or statues and yes we can talk about the deeper theological significance built into each of these things but to the average person who isn't going to spend time dealing with the deep theological questions that these theologians were dealing with it was a fight between statues or images are we going to have paintings or statues in the church which is it and they fought and they divided and they broke the church up over things like this there are arguments over music. Should there be music in the church? Should it be old traditional music or new music? Well, let's break up over that. There's so many things here. Like, one of the things that the Greek Orthodox disagree with the Roman church on is that in the Roman version of not this creed, but one that came after it, it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, there is good evidence that the original creed did not have the phrase and the son and the greek orthodox look at this felique the latin phrase there and the son and say that the roman church has to apologize for this because this is wrong and yes in any consistent concept of the trinity the holy spirit cannot proceed from both the father and the son because that would mean that two have something that one does not remember only one has something that the others do not else it's all shared together and yes it does break the basic rubric of the trinity but the whole point of the trinity is to remind us that we cannot speak with certainty about anything dealing with God. So the purpose of the construction of the Trinity is to be a Zen koan. It's to be a mystery, a mysterion that we look at and realize how much our words fail when coming up against the divine. So dividing over what those words are, I don't know if that's necessary. 
I will say I feel that the Orthodox Church is right on this because the definition is a simple one. And the Roman the Roman filique adds to that simplicity and detracts from it, makes it much more complex. And then, of course, Protestantism gets even more complex and dot, 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 dot. But see, there I go. I'm doing it too. I believe in the Holy Catholic, universal, same everywhere church. And so as long as we can agree on the basics, it shouldn't matter. Maybe I should even go a little bit further. The most important thing is love. Jesus said that that's how you would know his disciples. So did the apostles. So maybe that's the thing that we should be looking at. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself? Do you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you? Maybe those should be the only litmus tests for whether or not someone's a Christian. Because honestly, they're really the only ones that I find in Scripture. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or this series, please do so. That does help me out a lot. If you know anybody that you think would you know, benefit from this show, please share with them. Share it with them. That helps out and helps the message to go out to more people, and that helps me get my get the message out. If you have a few dollars that you could cast my way, depending on the app that you're listening to me on, there'll either be a button that says support, or you can click over into the show notes. You'll see a link that says support on Anchor. If you click that, you can donate it to $1, $5, $10 levels. That's a month, and that money goes to me um, and helps me, you know, work out time in my schedule to do things like this podcast to pay for upkeep on the website and to, you know, do the things that I want to do over there. Because, you know, we live in a capitalist society and I got to be able to afford this all somehow. <laughs> so if you can, if you can help out that way, that would be wonderfully appreciated. If not, please pray for me. You have no idea how much your prayers do help. You know, we do live in a spiritual world and yeah, please pray. Even if you do have money to give, that, that's nice, but you know, I really want your prayers. Please pray for me. It, it really does help out a lot. I think that's it. If you want links to everything that I do, you can head over to wisdomscry.com. You can find some resources that I've written up over there, and hopefully I'll have some free time and be able to do some more over there shortly. Um, yeah. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you, keep you ever growing in wisdom. Amen. Bye.